Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. Now, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and he went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. And there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then as they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? And where do you come from? And what is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea, and then the sea will be quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. And then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Father, as we consider how you are gentle and lowly at heart, and so often we are not, would you use our time in studying this book that uh, what is often considered a children's tale, that it would be for us adults? that it would land in our hearts, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Jonah on the face of it is a simple book with a simple tale, a simple message to us. Uh, a prophet was called to go and to preach a message to a particular people. And rather than obey the call of God, Jonah runs from God. He runs from the people that he's supposed to proclaim this message to. And so he goes and boards a ship heading in the wrong direction away. And this storm that we just read arose and it hurled itself against the ship. And so the sailors aware of what's going on, they toss him overboard. And Jonah is then swallowed up by this large fish. And then eventually he cries out for help. He then is called again to go 
to the city of Nineveh. And he, then he goes this time. And when he pre- preaches a six-word message that any preacher would dream of preaching this six-word message and having the following results. And when he's done and the dust is settled, a king repents, a people repent, and even the livestock are repentant. But this story, friends, it's not really about Nineveh. No, when you back out and actually look at what's going on, it's really, it's actually about the heart of Jonah in contrast to the heart of God himself. We're supposed to see these two and weigh them against one another. And I get excited about this book because if this is the God that you and I worship, this is a God that you want on your side. This is a God you need. You need Jonah's God. If this God is the God we worship, and he is. He is the the Lord that you want in your corner. A God who is there for distant people, lost people. And we find in the book of Jonah, a God of mercy. Tremendous mercy. Recall that this book, this wasn't a single book in isolation that's plucked up. This is a book that belongs in the book of the 12. 12 what? 12 minor prophets. They were kept together. And these minor prophets were not minor because they were uh, minor in, in, in their message. No, it's minor because they were minor in length as compared to the major prophets that are much longer. But these came together and this book uh, is one that finds its appropriate place within the 12, revealing God's mercy and justice. And the problem is God's mercy and justice by the end of this book do not resolve I will argue by the end of the book of Jonah that this really only makes sense if we put it in the context of the entire Bible, the entire biblical storyline. Now, when most people, I think, begin to think about Jonah or they hear this story for the, even for the first time, I think for Christians and non-Christians alike, there's one primary thing that comes to mind regarding this book, isn't there? So let me address the elephant in the room, or let me say the whale in the room. You know what I'm talking about. The uncomfortability of the fact that Jonah is swallowed by this large fish, or we could even presume perhaps a whale, we're not sure, and somehow make it alive. How do we deal with this? How do you come and wrestle with this? Well, I think one, um, one way that is very popular to, to, to one way to go about the uncomfortability is just to say that this book is merely fiction. If you, if you just say that this book is fiction, well, that settles all of the tension, doesn't it? It kind of deflates the balloon. You don't have to worry about it. It's just a kid's tale with a, with a moral lesson for us to learn. But there's a problem with this. If we take that sort of attack, that sort of a view, it, the, the issue arises that when we come across Jesus and the way that he quotes it, he seems to quote it as though he really believes it happened just as we read it. Uh, now, now you could say, well, maybe Jesus is just quoting it there um, as, as if it's a story that was common for people to know. Um, you know, that, that might be one way around it. But I think there's actually a far, far greater hurdle for us to overcome in this issue. And it is this. To my understanding, and if you discover, let me know, show me. But my understanding is this. As you read through the New Testament, 
and you, you will not find any disciple, any apostle, any biblical writer, nor Jesus himself who treats any of the Old Testament prophets, writers, or anything as fiction. Not either in verse nor in chapter do they treat any of it as if it is a story. They treat it, all of it, as if Moses and Ezekiel and everybody else who wrote, it it happened just as they wrote. And so that is a significant hurdle. So then if we say, well, if it did happen, then to solve the tension, here's the other route we were going to go with the uncomfortability of this. And it's, a, and it's one that I think folks in our church are going to be much more tempted towards. And it is to deal with this from a scientific background. To deal with this to prove that someone could be swallowed by a whale and that there would be enough space in the stomach. And, and you know, scientists have measured and they, they, they know that whales, when they come up out of the water, they're sucking air as they come up out of the water. So Jonah would have enough oxygen down in the stomach to be able to breathe. And, and we want to relieve ourselves of this sort of tension by going to science to try and help us out that this could have actually happened. And so then we come to stories like James Bartley. You heard of James Bartley where he was in the 1890s swallowed by a whale. And then he was able to survive in the whale for 36 hours. And it is said that when, when he finally made his way out of the whale, that he, his skin was bleached white from the stomach acid of the whale. Except there's one little problem. All the people who were with Jim Bartley back in the 1890s say this didn't happen Well, so what do we do? We come to 2021, where a man by the name of Michael Packard happened to be out crabbing in the ocean recently, and he was swallowed up by a a whale, and apparently uh, subsequently taken to the, you know, to the hospital afterwards, and had a minor limp, but by and large seemed to be unscathed, except there's only one problem with Michael's story. There's no video. No pictures, no evidence. Ah, to which you say, don't worry about Michael. Just rewind four years or three or four years earlier. And we come to another man whose name is Rainer Schimpf. Rainer Schimpf was captured on camera. You can go online and watch the pictures of him being gobbled up by a whale. He was down off the coast of South Africa, and he was in the middle of filming the famous sardine run down there. He's a videographer, and there was many other people taking pictures at the time, and there's snapshots of most of his body inside the mouth of the whale and parts of him hanging out. And by the way, Rainer Schimpf's son's name is Jonas. You know what Jonas means, don't you? Jonah. It's all a little too ironic. But here's the problem with the story of Rainer. It's key to this whole issue. It's one thing to survive for three seconds in the mouth of a whale. It's a whole other thing to survive for three days in the belly of the whale. Friends, do you understand that for this to happen, it would take a miracle? And it's right on that point I want to drill down. If you have a tough time believing the Bible because of miracles, let me just make it worse for you this morning. I I, I want to remind you, the Bible is filled with miracles, both Old and New Testaments. 
Everything from a Red Sea being divided so that people walk through on dry land in Exodus 14, all the way to the sun standing still in Joshua 10, all the way to never-ending food that Elijah provides in 1 Kings chapter 17, to a virgin being uh, having a child in Luke chapter 2, to the church providing miracle after miracle after miracle for people who were ill or who were lame and now could walk in Acts chapter 4. Friends, in the very first verse of the Bible, we come in contact with a God who is spirit. He's not like you and I, physical. And this God creates everything that you have ever seen out of nothing. He doesn't take carbon molecules that are in a pile and say, I shall create rock and hydrogen and oxygen atoms and say, I shall create the sea. Friends, rewind. There is nothing. He has nothing to start with. He miraculously speaks these things into existence. Your problem, it's not with Jonah. Your problem is with Genesis 1.1. For if Genesis 1.1 is true, anything that comes after is possible. Don't you see? God, if he can speak everything that you've ever seen into existence, why is it that he would have a problem doing any miracle at all? If he wanted to invert the colors right now of this room so that all of a sudden the blues are yellow and, and the greens are red, etc., he could do it. If he wanted to make all of us in this moment be able to just float up off the ground and fly out like the eagles out in the forest here, he could do it. If he wanted to turn salad to taste like ice cream, he could do it. We should pray. <laughs> There's nothing our God cannot do. So why is it then that we struggle so much with a man being swallowed by a large fish and able to make it for three days? Friends, three days and three nights in the belly of the whale is nothing compared to three days and three nights in the tomb and then risen on resurrection Sunday. So if you believe in Jesus that he rose from the dead, why don't you believe that Jonah can make it for three days in the belly of the whale? And if you desire to wrestle more with this, I'm happy to talk with you. I, I, I think these things are fun to, to ponder and discuss. But meanwhile, I want to drill down and I want with you to spend our time moving beyond the things that concern uh, the issue of the whale and really look at what I think God wants us to see in this book. And it begins with this man, Jonah. You have to understand Jonah in his time, where he's at in this moment, Israel is, uh, it's on shaky ground. Uh, the kingdom had already been divided. We've been through a civil war. You understand that there was north and south here in the United States with the civil war. Well, very much Israel in the same way, gone through a, a schism and you had then kings ruling in the north and the south. And then basically, uh, as this northern kingdom had gone through a period of prosperity and seemed to be doing well. It wasn't long before cracks started forming. Um, no shock to us. It was the call more often than not uh, for the prophets to come and, and call out for repentance. Call out to the people who were once part of a strong kingdom that David had ruled over and say, yeah, the land was flowing with milk and honey, but now it has become a land that's flowing with bitterness and with anger and with division and with corruption. And it is at this point that it was so bad in the north that King Jeroboam had been reigning when he set up in the temple there 
golden calves in the sanctuary for the people are supposed to be worshiping Yahweh and he puts these golden calves for the people to worship. We know from 2 Kings chapter 14 that Jonah was reigning or was prophesying in this time and that he's the son of Amittai. And we see there he prophesied actually good things for the northern king, uh, kingdom of Israel, even saying that their borders would be restored. But the good times, they don't last long. We read that Jeroboam, who was considered evil, Amos later prophesied the decline and, of, of, and the exile of the Israelites into Syria. And that later, of course, does happen. Now, Jonah is from Gath Hefner. And if, if you could picture this on, on a map, it's almost smack dab in the middle of the northern kingdom. It's a, it's a little bit further north, but the, the timing of this book is a bit vague to us. It's safe to assume that it happens sometime around Jonah's public ministry, which would have been 782 BC all the way to 753 BC during his public ministry. Why the history lesson? I know some of you are falling asleep, but just hear me out on this. The history helps us because the history shows us and helps unlock the whole meaning of this book. It's a minor prophet with a major message to us. Because as we discover what Jonah's name means, dove, and we see his father's name, son of Amittai, means truth, he then is the dove, the son of truth, And you don't get past verse 3 before the ironies abound. Because here, the dove of peace, as it were, would rather keep the truth bound up to himself rather than to share this peace and truth and mercy with another people. And many scholars, they've wrestled with how we might view Jonah. I mean, is Jonah merely to be one that we see in isolation on his own and kind of go, oh, don't do that. Or is Jonah to be in connection with the other prophets so that what we hear from Jonah and see from Jonah, he's actually representative of the other 12 or the other 11 minor prophets or other prophets beyond that? And many scholars have come to say, actually, Jonah, he, he really is a representative in many ways of the entire people of God, especially of Israel in the north during this time. And I, I want to take that track because it helps Jonah be a mirror that I look into Jonah and I say, is there any hint of this in me? Is Jonah's struggles, his strengths, his weaknesses, his sin, is this my sin? And it helps me wrestle with this. I think what we see here is as Jonah is despising these people, you and I will need to consider at the very heart of this, our own sinful attitudes towards particular people and people groups. Who is it that Jonah is so negative against? It's the Ninevites. Who are the Ninevites? Who are they? Well, as we consider Jonah representing Israel, it is true that Nineveh sort of represents all of the Gentile nations as a whole. Why is that? Well, with their blatant and their defiling sin, Nineveh was a grotesque city. It was filled with rebellion against Yahweh, against the Lord. Nineveh was a city that was, we later read at the very end of this book, was considered to be a great city, possibly due to the fact that it was very large. It would have been considered as at its time to be like the LA or New York of the nation of of Syria. It was strong enough that Nineveh lasted for a thousand years. Now, I wish if we could, if we all had the money and the time, maybe we could all fit in one plane. But if you and I could, we'd go fly to London right now. 
And when we would get to London, we'd land there, we would do two things, two pit stops. First, Dave, to your point, we'd go have tea. The men would have tea too. Because why? Well, we're in London. So we'd, we'd go have tea. And then after we're done having tea, we'd go to the British Historical Museum. And then when we'd walk into the British Historical Museum, we'd go find this thing called the Black Obelisk of Shalomasser III. The Black Obelisk of Shalomasser III, you've probably never heard of this thing. But it's an amazing, almost like a tombstone. And it's there in the British Museum. And it almost looks like a like a tall pillar, and then, you know, as many tombstones, uh, old ones, that would come up to a pointed top at the top. It kind of looks like that, you know, it's like yay high. And etched into it, carved into the stone, is history. And if you go to that stone, it's amazing, because what you see on this obelisk is etched the history of King Jehu. Now, remember I told you where Jonah is prophesying and the King Jeroboam is reigning. King Jeroboam's like great-grandfather is King Jehu. And pictured, chiseled into the stone is King Jehu and he's bowing down. Who's he bowing down to on the stone? To the king of Assyria, to the king in Nineveh. And all of a sudden, you begin to see everything that we see in the book of Jonah was true. This was a reason for people to be enraged and upset. It would be akin to if our president was seen to be bowing down to King Jong-un in North Korea. You would say, what on earth are you doing? Well, the Assyrians, the Ninevites, they had become incredible enemies. And this evil people that Nineveh is bound up with are a people that all the Jews would have recognized they had a reason to dislike them. This was the kind of people that would take all of their enemies' heads and pile them up in a pyramid at the city gates so that if you want to come against them, well, your head might just be there too, Jonah. And so you could see that these people being like the Taliban of their era, all of a sudden it comes to light. Why is it that Jonah would be a little reluctant to want to go witness to these people. And it is to this evil people that the call of Jonah has come. So I want to rewind back to chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. And I want to read these to you. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. And this may be a good moment for us to understand the structure of this book. The book is evenly divided in two parts. And there's key words right here that you'll see repeated. So that the two sections both begin by the call of God to Jonah. The beginning of chapter 1, the beginning of chapter 3. Verse 1 of chapter 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the son of Amittai. Flip over to chapter 3. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. And so out of this structure, go, Jonah, go, arise, and go to Nineveh. Out of this structure, we see two things happen. On, on both ends, God saves Jonah through mercy in chapter 1. God saves Nineveh through mercy in chapters 3 and 4. And then we see Jonah's response in chapter 2. Jonah's response of a great gratitude in chapter 2. And then we see chapter 4, Jonah's response of great violence because he's wishing death. Death upon the Ninevites? No, 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 no. He wants 
suicide. He wants the death of himself. He'd rather die than these people come to salvation. So Jonah's call then to arise and go. It's not a small task. Would have involved a long journey. I don't know what the longest hike you've ever been on, but this hike would have been somewhere around a five to six hundred mile journey for Jonah uh, to get to Nineveh. So this was a you know this was a many uh, mile journey, and it would have taken him you know a week or two or so to get there. And right at the outset, we read what Jonah's mission is. To be fair to him, it, it was unprecedented. I, we 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 see Gentile individuals, um, you know, being uh, spoken to and cared for by Jewish people. Uh, we, we see Jewish individuals such as Boaz caring for Ruth, who was a Gentile. We see Old Testament prophets going to proclaim a message of repentance to an entire people, such as Isaiah to the people of Judah. But never prior to Jonah do we see up to this point a call on a prophet to proclaim a message of repentance like this to a people who are essentially considered terrorists. So to this calling, we now see the response of Jonah. Interestingly, when God, his creator, calls him to go, Jonah says, no. <laughs> uh, then to make sure that we understand just how strongly Jonah's no is, it's not as if Jonah doubles down, he triples down. We see him uh, saying no, 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 because we have the repeated uh, words of Tarshish mentioned, mentioned three times. Look at verse three and see these three times mentioned. Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. So twice mentioning he's going from the presence of the Lord, three times mentioned Tarshish, and two times mentioned going down. It's interesting because with the topography, to get from where he would have been probably in the northern kingdom down to the coast, he would have gone down. Going down always has this implication of going away from the Lord. And when you go down far enough, you're going down to hell, right? So he goes down to the coast. He goes down into the ship. And later we'll see next week, he goes down to the depths of the ocean. So the, the picture is he is going as far away as he possibly can from the Lord. And if we had a, a map up on the wall, you would see very clearly. Here's Joan in the middle. And then you would see, well, uh, Nineveh's up here, kind of northeast, and he's supposed to go here, but he goes in the opposite direction, down to the coast, and he's trying to go to Tarshish, which we believe is maybe out in the Mediterranean towards Spain, so he's going away. He's going the wrong way, and he's doing it, friends, on purpose. The opening of this book has a prophet of the Lord running away from the presence of the Lord. What's the problem here? Friends, you, as we heard read in the call to worship this morning, you can't get away from the presence of the Lord. Psalm 139, a psalm of David where he says, where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, in the grave, as it were, you are there. Friends, when God has a call on your life, you can run, but you cannot hide. And I hope you see that that's good news. It's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. And so I ask you this morning, have you been finding ways to run from God? I don't mean going down to PDX and getting on a flight. 
I mean, have you found ways of running from the Lord by even just occasionally showing up here on a Sunday morning? Have you devised ways to keep yourself very busy so that you can avoid having to talk with him or hear from him? Have you been distracting yourself with all of your extra time is spent on your phone or your computer? Are you one who's tempted like to abuse substances or even abusing food just to avoid the Lord? Are you one who wants to quickly get into church and quickly get out of church because you want to avoid real conversations with real people about real struggles and and a real Jesus? These are all common ways you and I, we can run from him. And you're probably thinking now of ways that you know that you avoid him that are outside of the list that I've just given. We all have them. And think on this because it doesn't always take a location changed just to run from the Lord. You can be here every Sunday and do that. No, the people of God can attempt to run from God, but thank you, Lord, he won't let us ultimately run from him. For if we had the type of God that Jonah is wanting, well, then we could be away from him. A God who says, fine, we won't go preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Fine, we won't bring good news to a lost, evil people who need the good news. But second, when born-again believers of Christ try to run from God, it seems to be that they always are trying to run from him, but then they turn around as born-again believers and we run right into him. The Lord has a very special way of making sure his people can't escape his goodness, even in trials, even in struggles. You know, we can become the most miserable believers when we try to escape the Lord who saved us. And so we cry out, Lord, help us. This book opens with a prophet running away from the Lord, and in his mercy, it ends essentially uh, with the prophet also trying to run away from the Lord in his mercy. So how is it that in chapter 4, he says he'd rather die than be a part of all this. Well, he's again, this death that he's wishing upon himself is an escape. It is him trying to run away from this situation. Running. So Christian, hear me on this. For those who've struggled with the temptation that this book will speak to you and I, the safest place that we will be is not when we run from God, but when we run to the Lord. When we run to him asking for his mercy, it's what this book circles around. And you will find every time that you run back to the Lord, his arms are always open wide saying, come, come. I desire life for you. I desire good for you. The Lord closes this book asking, should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? And so this book strangely ends with a question. I think it's the only book that ends with a question. The Lord's question, I think, raises a question or two for us. If God's pity for a city like Nineveh that is filled with paganism, paganism and evil, should we not join him in pitying places like Nineveh, places like Portland, places like Welch's? Places here, and by the way, if you're unaware, there's a far more greater presence of paganism and spiritualism than you might first imagine. Here's another question. Will we allow the Lord's call to proclaim a message of warning and good news uh, be something that falls on our ears deftly? 
Are we hypocritical in how we structure our lives or even our church lives so that we insulate ourselves from ever coming in contact with people? Do we subtly believe our neighbors don't need to hear this message because, after all, they are who they are and they won't ever change, so why should we even bother? Is it grace and mercy for me, but not grace and mercy for them? Are we angry like Jonah? And if so, is our anger justified? Do we pray and mean it, Father, forgive us as we forgive those who've trespassed against us? All these questions and more we're going to wrestle with in our time in Jonah. A book where the man, the prophet of God, won't obey. But a book, strangely, where, I don't know if you caught this, everything else is, you've read through Jonah before, everything else seems to obey the Lord except Jonah. Even creation obeys him. The wind, supposed to cause the storm, the wind obeys. The wind is called to stop by the Lord, the wind obeys. It's also a book in which the fish that swallows Jonah obeys. The plant at the end, and even the worm that eats the plant, they all obey the directives of God himself. But not this prophet of God. And so what hangs then, even as the book of Jonah ends on this strange note, is how will God be faithful to his promises to save the nations? We think of Abraham, where the promise of God is that that God would be a blessing through Abraham's offspring to all the nations. And if God's own people won't go and proclaim this, these, this good news, how will God do this? How will he do it? Well, If we can back out for a moment from the minor prophet to the major story of God's redemption, you see, Jonah the prophet was sitting well. During the days of the northern kingdom's wealth, Jonah would have enjoyed the fruit of the land. He would have been in this amazing position, called to proclaim this positive message to the people. And a people he identified with. It was a good place to be. It was a place of comfort. But when God called him to leave his place of comfort and proclaim a message of mercy to a people he considered enemies, he said no. Jesus, too, was in a good place. Jesus Christ was in the most comfortable place he could possibly be in heaven. He sat there surrounded by the servants of God and the angels of the Lord. He enjoyed perfect harmony and fellowship with the triune Godhead. He had every reason to just stay right there. But when God, his father, commissioned him to go to a people who are rebellious and evil and have spurned him, Jesus didn't say no. He said, I will do it. I will go. Friends, we need a prophet who's obedient. And in Jesus Christ, we have one, but more than a prophet. Not just a prophet, but God himself, the Son of God, our Savior, who looked at Gentile nations and said, yes, I will go. Not that he wished that he would die, but he wished to die for us. He says, they too will make up my flock, even as we recently saw in the book of Ephesians, where we find the Jews and Gentiles of Christ making up one people of God. And therefore, our heart must enlarge to share the heart of Christ, to leave our comfort, to love the unlovable, to desire the salvation of those who are not just like you. So Jonah runs while he is called to extend mercy to an evil people. And we find it is the prophet himself that actually at the end of the story, he's the one who needs mercy. How will God provide that mercy? 
Will Jonah ultimately come to grasp that mercy? We're going to stay tuned as we unpack these questions. But let me leave you with this. My prayer is for you and I that we would see the Lord's mercy is one step ahead of us in providing what we ultimately need. And thankfully, thankfully, the Lord is not giving you and I what we deserve. But he sent the one to save us, even while we, with fists in the air, shook against him. So would you pray with me? Father, we know that we all in our own ways can desire to run from you. And Lord, we see that in our running, oftentimes you have the best things planned for us to come to an end of ourselves. And I just pray right now, if there's any of us, even if from the outward perspective, our our life looks put together, but we inwardly have run from you. Would you convict our hearts? Would you call our hearts to turn in repentance to you? And would really this be done out of seeing your great love and compassion and mercy for us? Lord, we see in, in many ways that Jonah's story is our story. And we pray that the story doesn't end in chapter four. There's so much more for us as followers of Christ. And so we pray that it would have, you would have your way with us in Jesus name. Amen.